Welcome to the Soulful Sound Podcast. This podcast is about celebrating the leaders, teachers, and coaches who guide fellow humans to connect, heal, and discover themselves so they can express their gifts into the world. I am Simone Niles, a coach, sound healer, vocalist, and author. Thank you for being here with me today. Welcome everyone to a new episode on the Soulful Sound Podcast. I'm joined by Thomas Moore, who is the author of The Eloquence of Silence and 24 other books about bringing soul into our personal lives and culture, including the number one New York Times bestseller, Care of the Soul. His work brings together spirituality, mythology, depth psychology, and the arts, emphasizing the importance of images and imagination. Hmm already so much to pull from. Welcome, welcome, Thomas. I'm so happy to have you here. Thank you, Simone. I'm very happy to be here with you today. Amazing, amazing. And so I've started dipping into your book, The Eloquence of Silence, and there's there's a lot to pull from it. And I just want to start off with just the, the first question, what inspired you to write the book and you know what brought that about for you? I began studying Eastern religions many, many years ago. I won't even tell you how many. <laughs> and uh, I got, even from the beginning, I was taken by this idea of emptiness that they use. And silence is a form of emptiness. That's why that's in the title of the book. Mm. It was pretty hard to come up with the title of empty without making it sound bad, you know. Like, <laughs> empty life, you can't do that. So... Um, Anyway, uh, I became very fascinated by this idea, and I have felt over the years in all my work that this was a very important concept, emptiness, that you that you you have some space in your thoughts and in your life. And, and I thought, this is really great, so important, and uh, finally decided to write about it. But I just collected, I over the years, I've collected these stories and passages from books about emptiness. And I stitched them together, and I didn't think this book would amount to anything at all. And, you know, it's the, it's the, it's the one book in the past several that people are really responding to. So yeah. it, must, uh, it must have some meaning for us today. Yes. Oh, for sure. And actually, what you touched on is one of the things that I wanted to kind of delve into. You used the word emptiness and said, putting that in the title, people will be like, here's how to have an empty life. Right. And often then people will say, my life feels empty. And I just want to touch on that. What is that life feeling empty from your perspective? Because you're speaking about emptiness in a positive light. And that perspective is is, is wonderful. Yes, the the uh, maybe I should clarify that in the Eastern religions, emptiness is a very positive thing, something you should look for and try to cultivate. Exactly. Um, but the, there's a negative side to emptiness too, and that, uh, we all know that that life feels empty. It's interesting because life is so full. There's so much. People are are you know overdoing it. Over uh, their their schedules are full. Uh, got more things around them than they need ever would need. Um, it's just very full. A lot of people and voices telling us from all the media, you know, constantly speaking to us. I mean, it, it, life is definitely not empty in that sense. But yeah. on the other hand, you know, you can have all that stuff and still feel that deep inside there's not there's something missing. 
there's something there that uh, makes me feel that I'm hollow inside. Maybe that's a better word. Mm. I'm sort of hollow inside. And that's not a good feeling. And it's not a good position to be in. And in my work, one of the things I do and everything is we go what we say we go into the symptoms. So what I would do is I treat emptiness with the empty feeling I'm hollow with emptiness. Mm. That's beautiful. That's a very interesting nuance. <laughs> that is beautiful. Okay, so emptiness, silence, and I know that silence is is part of the title of your book. I I'm really curious about that piece. So a lot of the work that I do as a sound healer or vocalist. Do you feel called to use your voice and sound in a healing capacity? Learn how to use your voice therapeutically to facilitate healing and well-being. Whether you want to go deeper in your own healing journey or facilitate others in theirs, this training is for you. This online training runs over five weekends and offers theory, practice, resources, and support on your path to becoming a qualified sound healer and for your personal healing journey. You know, musician, that the silence is what makes the sound more profound. In sound healing, the silence is where the integration and healing takes place, you know, after the sound or in between the sound. So I understand very practically the power of silence in my work. And in my life, um, I grew up in a household of metaphysical teachers. And one of the things that I learned very young from my mother, and she used this when she was doing her lectures, was the word silent has the same letters as the word listen. And there is something in the listening that allows you to hear your, to go into the silence and hear your soul, your intuition and things like that. So I'd be curious about your take as a starting point on that, the potency of silence. First of all, I should tell you that I'm also a musician. I studied music composition when I was younger. Amazing. Yes. Very tuned to music. Anyway, uh, uh oh, now I've forgotten the thought. the uh could the you pa- say yeah uh, sure the power the power of silence or the profound nature of silence for you whether it's in music or whatever any any uh-huh. context yeah yes it's it's first of all i and i make this point in the book mm. that we have to hear ourselves we ourselves mm-hmm. not just other people we have to hear ourselves i i, I when i'm teaching therapists uh psychotherapists, I tell them that uh, they have to listen to themselves as well as to the person they're they're working with. And I think that's hard today because there's so much noise and so so many distractions. It's hard to hear yourself to know what you're feeling Mm. and what you should do next. I mean, you know, we get inspirations and we get, we, I think we do get a kind of inner guidance, you know, like these voices within us or presences that urges that give us important information about what to do next. And if you're too busy and too loud, the world is too loud, you can't hear that within yourself. Yeah. 
Yeah, it's beautiful. And there is a difference between listening to understand, listening to respond, listening to hear. And I love that, that obviously you go to that inside out approach, right? Listening to ourselves, our own dialogue, our own um, thoughts and processes and so on. And I'm really interested in how you, I know you have a wealth of experience. And one of the things that I read is that you've had a background as a monk, You've also, you also have a background in psychology. And those two threads, one would say, if I kind of just open, open up for the thread that's coming through for me, that one is very much related to the mind, psychology, the psyche. And then in terms of your, your practice as a monk and in the spiritual side of things, that that's, let's say, more focused on the soul or let's the inner landscape. How do you marry the two in your work? Well, if you allow me to just use the way I use the words are a little bit different. Yes. So uh, most of my work is about soul and most of my books have soul in the title. What I mean by that, I come out of a particular tradition that's been going on for thousands of years, uh, that uh, the soul is is more that part of us very deep, very, very deep, beyond our emotions, really, where we feel meaning and we feel uh, imp- the impact of events on us, like if we lose somebody, you know how deep that goes, it touches your soul. We say that. And um, the spirit to me is more that part of us. And it's not just my idea, but the, the idea that the spirit is what moves us forward and takes us high. And it's very important to give us a vision and a sense of being in the world. I love what's going on these days with the telescopes out giving us these pictures of the cosmos, which causes us to reflect on our the world we live in. That's a very spiritual uh, place to be. But the soul is more about home and family and uh, taking care of your home, cooking food, uh, all that stuff that really touches you deeply. And the tradition says that the soul makes us human. The spirit takes us beyond humanity, which is so important. But the, the soul makes us human. So um, what I do in all my work is try to do both. I was a monk. I really developed the spiritual life very intensely for a long time. I lived in a rather silent atmosphere. You know, monks do live kind of in a quiet place. Yes. And I love that. That was in my youth. You know, it was that was decades and decades ago. I mean, hundreds of years ago, it seemed. <laughs> but still, it, it lives with me, and it's important to me. I have books around me all the time to kind of give me the sense of the monastery and yes. things like that. Uh, so... Um, I think that the the, the point is that uh, we need to, as I've been saying for years, we need to care for our soul. And how do you do that? You you do it by um, by really being alive, by being present, mm. and, uh, present to other people, to the things of the world. And uh, that's why when people come to me for therapy, I often encourage them to learn how to cook because there's something about how food, just being with food is so, so soulful. You know, it just, uh, it, uh, it, it, it gives, it sparks your memory. Uh, you, 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 you meditate as you cook, you think deeply about what's going on. You're very, very attentive to the temperature. <laughs> And all these things. That's a very good way to be in the world from the point of view of the soul. Mm. 
That is so beautiful. I mean, it's for me, cooking is meditation. And I and I love that you described it that way. Um, but I think it's even more important, as you said, to recognize how it in, awakens the senses, how it allows us to come into being present. Um, and also the sacredness of what food is and what it offers that nourishment for ourselves and our families it's it's all altogether such a beautiful experience and i love cooking so i absolutely relate um to that um that feeling of it being a meditation and you spoke a bit about relationships um and i i'd love to know your take on how i don't necessarily want to say the role of emptiness but how does emptiness um, play a role in our, have a space in our relationships? Because that's an interesting place to look at. Yeah, it is. It's, uh, first of all, I think the, the emptiness, an emptiness, one, one, one kind of emptiness is a silence where you don't talk when you might have the inclination or the urge to talk. And I think in our relationships with each other, especially very close relationships, it's so important not to keep talking all the time, to listen more, mm. uh, maybe to be in silence for a while with somebody or quietly. It's like when you, I know when, when my wife and I go for a walk, uh, a lot of times we're just quiet. We don't talk. We just walk and take it all in, but you're doing it together. And I think that that uh, has a big impact, really, a big effect on you. But there may be an inclination today to talk all the time. Yeah. You don't need to talk. So that's one thing that will help the relationship. You can you can observe and listen to your 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 partner or whoever it is you're relating to. If you can just resist the the uh, the urge to talk too much. Mm. Yes. And I'll, and I'll, I want to ask you a little bit more on that because there are a lot of people and I, and I know this for myself and my own practice that would feel there is a time to speak up and there is a time to be silent. Any tips on how to differentiate between the two? Um, well, I, how do you do you, you, uh, I think what you do is that when it's time to speak that you really speak. So you don't end up constantly in this middle place where you're both, you know, you're talking, but you're, you're not listening. It kind of gets pushy. So if you can really speak clearly, I, I can't tell you how important I think this is in our relationships, to speak clearly to somebody. That's not the same as to speak forcefully. But it does have a, a strength to it if you can speak clearly and then be quiet. Yes. What happens when people talk a lot of times, they'll say something and then they take it back or they modify it. <laughs> and therefore the talk, the conversation is mushy, muddy. Yeah. And that doesn't help. So if we can be clear and then stop, you yes. know, I don't like this. Nothing else. I hate to say this. You don't have to say I hate to say this. Yeah. It doesn't mean anything. You're taking back. You don't <laughs> need to say that. You want to say it. Yes. So you say what you have to say. Stop. Then there's the silence. So silence, speech, silence, speech works together quite well. But yes. the, the blend of all of that doesn't work so well. Mm -hmm. Yes, I, I mean, very simple and, and practical. And I think it's so important. I know that in my past relationships, we always had, um, or not always, but came to a point where 
for the communication to work is when one goes up, the other goes down. And that was the sound and, and the silence. And it's like, we don't need to both be here at the same time, you know, holding space for each other. So, but I really like the way you described it. It's like, say what you mean, speak clearly, and then be quiet. And in that silence is, is what offers, you know, the pause, it offers wisdom, it offers a moment to reflect, not just on what you're saying, but how you're feeling in the moment. And then that becomes the the transaction, not necessarily transaction, the communication between two, two people. Exactly. I when I was, when I haven't done couples therapy very much in my practice, but I did it a few times. Uh, and uh, actually, you know, I did it a fair amount of times. But, <laughs> but one of the things I would do is have one of the one of the couple, one person, sit back in the corner of the room and just observe when I talk to the, their partner. Mm. Because, because I felt that having one person quiet, they, they probably weren't used to that. And it was true. Most people said, I'm, this is enlightening to me because I've never just sat and listened. Yeah, like you get a perspective on your person, the person you're relating to, because you're not there. You're actually your role is not to engage. Your role is to observe. And I think that uh, that does teach something and it's useful. Yeah, very useful. I've uh, it, I can even just thinking about it or imagining that I can see the power in it. Um, that's amazing. And you say in your book that when, um, you know, once we learn to appreciate this emptiness as a positive thing in our lives, that we somehow become a different person. Can you mm-hmm. speak a bit to that? Yes, I think so. I think that uh, when you develop uh, develop this this emptiness, uh, which can take many forms. So it can take the form of you know clearing out your desk or your house, very physical, or it could be clearing out your schedule, mm-hmm. or it could be more deeply uh, not having your mind full of of thoughts of am I doing this well? Do they like me? All these thoughts that are that get in the way, the static, that, that emptying is very, very useful. And that's a traditional idea about emptiness, to clear your clear your mind and your thoughts. Yeah. And um, uh, what that does, it um, it allows you then to be uh, to be engaged with what you're doing. You know, you're really there. You're really there because you need this, I think we need this this atmosphere of emptiness around us. And if you have that, like like when we're talking now, if I am full of agenda, anything I said would be garbled. You know, if I have all these thoughts, I the the, the truth is, and I told you this when we started the talk today, that I like to I like to come with an empty mind. Yeah. I don't want to have all kinds of um you know uh, agendas and and things I want to accomplish and things that I don't want that. I want to be to be right there and just speak. And I do that when I give talks. Yeah. I, uh, I remember once giving a talk in Minneapolis. I was at this theater and I they put me in a green room and I spent the time in the green room emptying my mind. Yeah. And I went out and there was these, this audience and I was on a stage and I had nothing in my mind. Yeah. I that so well. And that was a great moment, you know, that, that actually worked very well. I like that very much to be able to have 
nothing going on so that what emerges comes out of it's just there you know you just you're just speaking and and it's clean in a way it's clean it's not full of all kinds of other things i know i I, again i've skipped your question but you no 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 you you've 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 not skipped it at all you you went exactly you know where i was what my my thread was was going there and what i like about this Obviously, you've given some practical tips, and I want to go a bit deeper into that. You spoke about the physical aspects of clearing your desk or clearing out your space, and then you spoke about clearing out the thoughts. Um, and what are some of the things that you suggest people do in that? I know we have so many options now, whether it's meditation or breath work or sounding or all yeah. sorts. But what are some of the things that you suggest um, as a practical way to find that emptiness? My my approach is not so much having another program to do, yeah. you know, that that's not empty enough for me. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I would not even meditation, you know, I think to me, the best meditation is when you just find yourself sitting somewhere. I, when I go to a doctor's office um, and I walk in the room and there's a television on and uh, or there are magazines on the table, I avoid those things and I just sit. I just sit and I don't have any purpose in mind. I just sit and and I observe my thoughts and it's really refreshing, you know, mm-hmm. not to do anything. So I would recommend, first of all, yeah. to discover how to sit. This is what the Zen master teaches, you know, that you, you learn how to sit with and not doing anything else. Uh, uh, the, the Zen teachers I read uh, and study with say you sit like a frog. You know, you you just sit there. I mean, that's you don't you don't ask the frog if they would like a magazine. <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> so, uh, so I think that that's the first thing. If you could learn how to do that, to be there with nothing, mm-hmm. nothing going on, no purpose, nothing in your mind. You don't need a purpose all the time. In fact, yeah. I'm not a good person to talk about living with a purpose because I it's not my thing. Uh, I think you ought to live, you know, just live and don't worry about what the purpose is. The purpose comes every moment if you're yeah. if you're in touch with what you're doing. The purpose shows itself to you and and you don't have to be anxious about it or make a program out of it. Yeah. So that's really the, the first thing would be to to find opportunities to do nothing. If it helps to go for a walk, you know what the Henry David Thoreau says, when you go for a walk, open your door and just walk. Don't think about which direction to go, he says. Yeah. Just walk. Yes. So yes. I, like I like that a lot. Uh, you empty your, he's essentially offering a kind of emptiness there. Don't yeah. start thinking right away about where you're going to go and how long you're going to walk or anything like that. Just open the door and walk. Yeah. And so there's something to that um, that you uh, discover different ways in your daily life where you can be empty. And I think you can practice that so yes. that it eventually gets incorporated into the other things you do in your work life and in your relationships and so on. And being parents, you know, it's so important to be empty as a parent where you're not, you're not full of these, you know, making sure your kids are geniuses or, I mean, that's fine <laughs> at, at a point, but yeah. I mean, what about just being with your children and, um, uh, I also suggest being a kind of a, a therapist to your children in the sense that you uh, you, you don't just react to them. Mm-hmm. Uh, you you actually think, no, 
So my child is screaming, what's going on? How can I respond that I can, you know, help them get through this? Yeah. Be the therapist to them for a moment. That would mean emptying out all of your natural urges to shout and scream yourself. Yes. Yes, exactly. And I and I'm glad that you went into the parenting piece because I, you know, you spoke about going into many, you know, lectures and a lot of the work that you do where you have no agenda. And I think as parents, we tend to have this idea that this is my child and they need to do this XYZ. You know, and I've learned through I feel very blessed with the way I grew up with my family and of course all of the conditioning like everybody else was there but one thing that my um and I think it was um Khalil Gibran that says your children are not your children and that goes on to say that they're the sons and daughters of so we're understanding my understanding is that my children came through me you know but they're not mine they're their their own souls with their own lessons and their yeah. own journey and most of our job as parents is just to get out of the way to guide them in the best way we know how and then just to get out of the way that's an that's a, a kind of emptying you know it's yeah. emptying out all of that agenda and all that purposefulness for your children and so on you know an, an example of that when uh, as i said i i've been a musician all my life and when my kids were small, very small, I would buy musical instruments and put them in the house in various places and just wait for the kids to figure that they might take an interest in them. Yes. And my daughter now is a professional musician, travels all over the world uh, as a musician. And she'll tell that story that, you know, that she'd found these instruments and she learned how to play them on her own. I didn't really direct her with it. If she yes. had a question, I'd answer it. In fact, I, I wish I could have taught her more, but she didn't want all that from me, which was yeah. fun. Uh, yes. But I felt it was really important to make the give the opportunity. That's a kind of empty teaching, I would say, you yes. know, rather than being there forcing and pushing. That is not empty. Yes, I, I absolutely love that you touched on that, because I think that you know, this sense of you have to achieve the purpose part, right? This is all of these things you need to achieve. I, I think it's great to, to offer the opportunity, but also to let things unfold naturally, because often again, we sometimes kind of see the spark and try to light it and try to add fuel and try to get that spark going instead of just allowing it to just be a spark for as long as it needs to be a spark before it becomes a fire. And I think that spark is, as you just gave a beautiful example, there's so many things around that you can play with the curiosity of children just going in and trying things out but allowing them and their soul to decide what that what they'll do with that yes exactly yeah. my father yeah. was like that with me when I was a kid he would uh, he taught me by just giving me opportunities mm -hmm. I remember one time he was going to teach me how I come from Detroit where we do this bowling with the great big bowling balls mm -hmm. and uh, he taught me how to do that. I said, Dad, teach me how to bowl because I'd like to bowl with you. He already said, you put this ball in your hand and you push it, just throw it down the alley and try to get those pins. I said, yeah, but how do I do that? He said, just do it. You know, yes. so, I mean, that's, that's the way I was taught everything from my dad in my life. And he was really attentive and he gave me many opportunities, but he never pushed it. You know, he never... He never, he didn't even teach me things exactly very much, yes. but he gave me opportunities to teach myself. 
Oh, yes. Oh, yes. That is beautiful. And isn't that what our children are there for, right? They're really, they, we, we think we're there to teach them everything, but they definitely teach us about us, for well, sure. You, do you see then how the word empty works here then? Yes. It's a word that's used, you can use it all the time, say, oh, that's not empty when you teach too much. So we can empty that out by not forcing it. After a while, if you use this word, you'll know what it's about. But it's very hard to define. But keep using it like this and you'll get the idea. Yes. Can you repeat that? <laughs> that that phrase, not the whole thing, so that I can really hold that. If you if yeah, use the phrase again that you've just used. I just said that if you can if you can notice when you're using the word empty, when you have this kind of experience that is not full of your agenda. Yes. Over time, you learn what empty means, and then you can apply it everywhere. Yes. Mm. That gives a very different meaning to um, having a half a half empty cup. <laughs> That's for sure. Yeah, All right now, we're like wanting a full cup of everything with everything in it. It, it inverts it. It turns it up. <laughs> yes, I love that. Um, and as you're speaking about not pushing and not forcing, you talk about being soft as a pathway path forward to emptiness. Yeah. What is right. the soft in in? Just talk talk to me about well, that. We, we tend to be very hard these days you know and so I think in modern life we are very hard we we have to um we, you know we do things with such uh intensity yeah. and you know we take lessons for everything um we um uh we we demand that things be done very well or even perfectly and the soft approach would be to just sort of half at least halfway let things happen uh, let mistakes happen. That would be a soft thing that you could do. Uh, do it without the, all the great intention and wanting to achieve. Uh, figure out just how you could just do something uh, just to do it. Yeah. And, and not to be aim, aiming at something all the time. Like maybe, you know, people always want, I know in my profession, people want credentials. Mm -hmm. They want Credentials. For, why not just learn something and forget the credential? Or uh, if you you know study something without having to get a college credit for it, you know yeah. just really learn something. Uh, I teach a, a course online now, and I tell my students online. I say this is not school. We're here just to learn, and I'm not even here to teach. Mm -hmm. I'm here to help you learn. That's all I do. Yeah. Uh, if I teach something, tell me, and I'll stop it. <laughs> love it. I love that. Yeah. And I mean, I was going to ask you, but you've kind of touched on it, what your thoughts are about how we do that in education, because I think the education systems as a generalization is all about the pushing, the pressure, the, you know, memory and recall, not necessarily about that learning experience and the curiosity and play that we naturally have if it's not snuffed out, you know, when right. we're young in, in education. So is, are there any things that you might want to add to that specifically in that context? How can we um, create more space and softness in an edu in a world where the school system still exists as they do? You know, there's so much attention on measuring achievement. You can't measure. People are all different. Yeah. And it's all about measuring. 
I wish we could just get rid of it entirely. I know when I taught at the university, one of the things I used to do is ask my students to select what grade they wanted in the course. And they'd say, some students would say, well, a lot of them would say, I want an A. Some would say, I want a D. I'd say, that's great. You know, just enjoy the course and don't worry about it. If you want a D, it's fine with me. And they would do that. They would just do work to get a D in their course. Mm. I love that because they were deciding and I wasn't I wasn't grading them like a piece of meat. You know, I'm not yes. <laughs> grade you are. Um, it's that, that's a terrible thing to do to a person. So mm. in education, I, th- I know we're not going to change that system overnight, but I think we could uh, ease up on the uh, the measurements all the quantifications of people. Yeah. Uh, it used to bother me. I taught in a psychology department once, and uh, I'd watch these students come in to, full of, of, of the desire to study psychology. And I'd tell them, why are you studying psychology? And they'd say, I want to help people. And I'd say, what is your first course? And they said, statistics. And I thought, <laughs> you know, it doesn't, something wrong here. Yeah. I understand why they're taking statistics, because we quantify research now, and we think that's the best way to do it. Mm. I think it's silly myself to quantify human behavior. and that All these numbers, they give you the illusion of knowing what you're doing and the illusion of professionalism. But what about someone who really has insight and depth of understanding about people and yeah. could really become good professionals? Uh, we don't we don't do that at all. We don't do that at all. So yeah. there's tremendous amount of work to be done in education to yeah. soften it, soften it. See, take that edge off of all these numbers that make it so edgy, and uh, make it less defined. You know, less 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 perfect, and uh, but but deeper and wiser. Yeah. That's beautiful. One of my, well, my youngest child, who's now my son, who's now 16, but when he was around seven and eight years old, maybe even nine, as very often as adults, you know, interact with children, the questions are like, so what do you want to be when you grow up? And his response, and I couldn't be more prouder still, was happy. (laughs) That's great. You know, and I just thought that is that is a perfect response for me if there is a perfect response, because he was talking about that state of being. It wasn't about what he would be doing in order to achieve. It was just I just want to be happy. And I and I and I use that a lot in my teaching because it is coming back to that state of wholeness and the essence of who we truly are. And I know it takes a lot of um, conscious awareness, especially in the world that we live in, to peel back all of those layers which I know is a lot of the work that you're talking about, that emptying, which isn't necessarily about doing anything. Right. That's right. Yeah. So the emptying is kind of taking the the, the sharp edges off of our mm. uh, anything we do. Yeah. And that's a start. It's like you begin filing that down. That's an empty. I often think that this book should have had an eraser on the cover. Like you erase <laughs> as you go. I love it. Yeah. yeah. And you're great sub- lines. Yeah. You know, there's a great line in the Alice through the looking glass where uh she's uh she she says that she's uh she she knows all about addition, but she doesn't know anything about subtraction. And I think that that's where we are, you know, in this world. We know how to add and add and add, but we don't know how to subtract, yeah. but we should be subtracting all the time. Yes. That's beautiful. 
And that's what they should be teaching in school, that type of subtraction. <laughs> Wonderful. Now, in your book, you say that um, that you consider emptiness to be the primary doorway to meaning. So I'd love to know more about that, because you said you're the last person to talk about purpose and finding your purpose and so on. So there's I know this is different. I really can't wait to hear what you talk about in terms of the doorway to meaning. Well, uh, the question about meaning is, you know, we, a lot of times when we hear the word meaning, we think it must be something intellectual, you know, that something you can define or use a certain language for. But I don't think that's really what meaning is. Meaning is it's it's something that uh, is part of your being. You have an experience that is meaningful and you are different. Mm-hmm. You, you go through, I you know, my field is religious studies. Uh, not any particular religion, but the idea of religion and mystery and things like that, ritual, myth, things like that. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, there in the religions, uh, you you advance through initiation, not by, by meeting certain re- requirements, but by being changed by an initiatory experience. So that's what I would say our meaning is. So if you can, let's say, if you can uh, get to a point where you can leave your childhood, you know, uh, effectively and smoothly without damage to yourself, you know, if you can do that, that's really an achievement. That's initiation, maybe number one. And then you're, you're going to be initiated into your sexuality. Can I become a sexual person now where I wasn't before? That That is one of the big things in religions. You have to learn how to become sexual now. And so you do that. And it's not this big thing there where you make all these horrible mistakes. You still might make mistakes, but at least you are moving through that. And then maybe you get married. That's a real initiation. Or you get sick. So these are these are the moments when your being changes by going through certain passages in your life. And uh, that's that's where meaning comes. It's it's something baked into you. It's not in your head. Yes. Yeah. And it's often used very much from that intellectual piece. You know, we we the meaning something has is the meaning we assign to it. It's often the kind of the outlook that people have, which I think is true from an intellectual perspective. But that inner um like you said, kind of spark from rites of passage or initiation, those meaningful moments that really help us to form who we are or maybe expose who we are, which I which I might prefer. If I can apply this, I mean, this is where I get in trouble, but it is my field of religious study. Yes. I feel that with religions, which I know are, for many people, are a thing of the past, um, with religion, not for me, it's my field, and I love it. Yes. But... Um, but uh, I think I feel that when people think that it's about intellectual belief, like this is what I believe in, I think there is. Do you, they say, is there a God or isn't there? I mean, that's a dumb question because either you experience this infinite space around you and the mystery of it, or you don't. Yeah. But it's not about what you you believe in. This belief is cheap. I can believe in anything. It's, that doesn't mean anything. But if I have been allowed to grow and develop as a human being and deepen and gain insights through my religious practice. Wow, that's pretty good through my spiritual practice. But yeah. these 
think we have it backwards. We have it upside down. So there's another area where meaning comes uh, not intellectually, but through through insight and through transformation of yourself as a as a person. Yeah, that's that's really beautiful. And I actually, it's a bit of a segue into the question that is percolating now because you talk about um, how we can discover ourselves only if we lose ourselves. And I think that what you were speaking about is is kind of nudging me in that direction. Let's talk a little bit about that, losing ourselves so that we can discover ourselves. Isn't that in the gospel somewhere? I thought, anyway, close. So, uh, <laughs> yeah. Yes, it's an old idea. Yes. Uh, you, you, you gain yourself, you gain your life by losing it. And that's the emptiness for sure. Yeah. So, you know, we, we I think we do that all the time. You don't have to make a plan for it because it's going to happen whether you like it or not. Yeah. So let's say you find somebody you really love and you have this great relationship with them. And then one day it just falls apart and either you get divorced or you break up the, the relationship you've had. There is a tremendous loss, but um, I think what you do there is you 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 gain so much from that. Maybe that's why we go through different relationships. Yeah. Many of us mm-hmm. you go through, even through divorce and so on. You can say divorce is a terrible thing, but in many cases, it does seem like a discovery of the self. You know, it's like you discover that, oh, I can live differently now. And something in me has been wanting to live differently, and I've been trying to hold it down all this time, and I can't do it anymore. Or you get sick, you get a real sickness, you're in the hospital. I've worked a lot with medicine in my work over the years, and and I've, I've talked to people in hospitals, and many of them have told me that they wish they didn't have this illness, but actually it made them a better person. Mm. That's what I answer in your question. You lose your health, you lose yourself that way, but you gain something in the process because you've gone through a passage. Yeah. And that kind of is what you were speaking to before, those yeah, rites of passage or initiation or challenging moments or uplifting moments that bring meaningful or bring meaning. This is awesome. That's different from a learning experience, by it the is. way. Yeah. <laughs> a learning experience again is more something that you can pinpoint. This mm. is more a change of being rather than a change of idea. Yeah, mm, change of being rather than a change of idea. I love that, and I know that you also talk about having, um, well, I guess the relationship with our beliefs and values as we're on the topic of what you believe and so on. Because beliefs and values, they're they're you know we're not born with those. Right. So talk a little bit more about that, that uh, the journey of releasing or not being attached, so attached to our beliefs and values in this in the world we're living in now, for sure. I think a lot of people today, many people here in in the United States, especially all over the world, though, probably uh, are uh, kind of stuck. They haven't emptied. They haven't let go. That's another way of looking at it. Let go. They haven't let go of their childhood. Mm. You know, I understand child, the child spirit stays with you your whole life and your own childhood even stays with you in a certain way. And that would be a huge topic in itself. Yes. <laughs> uh, as you become adults. But there has to be, I think, a letting go of your family beliefs and values. I mean, you can sort them out. Some of them you may want to keep, but some of them you don't. Yes. 
to let go of some of those. And so many people are dominated by their their family values, you know, that they had. And that's not it. You've got to be yourself. Yes. You've got to think these things through. You've got to be an adult. You know, we can't be a child all the time and just say, oh, this is I'm fam- my family taught this. My daddy taught this to me. Mm-hmm. You know, get rid of that. Some things are very important that way. I feel the same way. My my parents, I, I cherish their, their many of their beliefs, but boy, there are lots of them I want to, I've got to get rid of, you know, you've got to let that go. And also child, the child sense. I'm, I'm a child and I, I really don't, I can't think things, I can't think about things. I can't read a book because it's too adult, yeah. you know, like um, you have to be smarter people. If there's anything wrong with Americans, they're not intelligent enough. You know, really, they're, they know they know STEM. They know, you know, they can make things, they can make technology, but they can't be human beings that can get along with the world. We can't do that with each other. That is a big problem that we haven't uh, developed as, and matured as people to be able to do that. So much going on in the news today is immaturity. Mm. That, that child thing's got to be let go. It's got to be emptied so yeah. that the adult can emerge. Yes, that is powerful. Another rite of passage, you know, and I recall this, I want to say maybe when I when I really left home 2021, that I, I started to consciously be aware of the beliefs that were passed on, the conditioning, the influences. And like you said, somehow sorting through and sifting through life's experience life's experiences to see what wants to stay what still feels congruent what still what feels like mine in the moment which even then evolves as you learn and grow and you know it's not static and i think this is this is something that i i find very precious um in my role as a parent where i grew up in a uh, i say a spiritual background simply because my mother um started her own metaphysical group or spiritual group feeling a little bit confined by the trip this you know the i don't know let's call it lines and boxes that we put around religion yet it was based on christianity and using the bible but again, there was this openness to all ways of looking at things so that we could find our own path within the information, which is what, what I passed on, I would say to my children, don't believe what I believe. This is These are the practices that work for me, and this is what make, brings joy and, and bring, makes me come alive in the world, but it might not be the same for you. If you want to practice with me, sure. But it's not a make or break. It's not this is the way or this is the way. And this is this is a beautiful, um, I think, gift, like you say, that we can as parents or children receive in the world now, especially. That's beautiful. Yeah, uh, that's you're, you're talking as an advanced parent there. That's really Thank something. You. You know. Thank you. you. Know what I mean, that's really, you know, that's the way to do it. We We have to understand somehow that. Uh, you can best raise your child by creating the opportunity where they can they can flower, they can blossom, yeah. they can come out as who they are, and then not please you or it may wound you in a certain way. Well, I'm I'm sorry, but as a parent, you've got to be wounded sometimes. Yes. Oh, Especially yes. Your ego has to be wounded because. You know, why do you want that? Do you want to show your children off or something? What you know, the biggest thing would be the best thing would be able to let them 
just come up as who they are and they will be strong, successful people that way. But not if you're trying to make them into something that you like. Yeah. That, that is crazy. I would, with, you know, with, I know with my daughter, uh, I, I've been trying to get her to learn how to read music for, I don't know, for 20 years, maybe. And, uh, she says, no, no, I don't need that. And she's very, very successful. I mean, much better musician than I ever became. And, uh, she doesn't need it, but you know, I still feel. Oh, I wish she could. You know, that's me. Yeah. All my life, that's all. That's only me. So you have to. I'm not saying you're not going to have these feelings of wishing <laughs> that they could be going a certain direction. Thing is, you have to empty it. Mm. You have to empty it. Let that go, and that's what's hard. But that's what. That's where. It, that's what counts. Yeah. Definitely. Yes. And I. And I love that. And. Yeah, again, letting go of the agenda. And because you're also a musician, you spoke earlier about those moments of um, kind of just coming in with no agenda. And I completely relate in terms of what I guess a lot of musicians would call being in the zone. That is about emptying, right? It's not I'm thinking of the next note or chord or sound. It's just allowing this empty space for, I guess, to be a channel of what wants to come through. Yes, there's practice. Yes, there's rehearsal. And then you just let go and get out of the way. Um, and I love that principle, how I can see it working in so many different, you know, contexts. I, I feel that as a writer, mm. if I get into the zone, as you say it, the, the words pour out. I mean, they just pour out and pages and pages get written in no time. And then I go and look at it and it's horrible. You know, <laughs> And it then you let all, that go. <laughs> it's so liquid. It is so liquid. All, no, but I have to shape it. I have to get something now from my not being in the zone quite so much. Now I, I want a little of that, but I want to be able to shape it now in a way that it, it can communicate better. But yeah. still what comes out is so rich and valuable. So I build on that, but I don't, yeah. I don't end with that. Yeah. And that's the same in what you were talking about before in relationship, the side, the say what you want to say or say what you mean or be clear and then be silent and so your your zone is all of the blah, 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 blah coming out, and then there's the silence, and then you go back to it again. That editing becomes the next stage or the next line or phrase, which is amazing to be able to, to bring that back into context. That's right. That's exactly how it works to me. And yes, you're right. I think this, this movement of uh, talk and then be silent or act and then sit back. That kind of a rhythm is really good. But it's got it can have a clarity too. That's what one thing I think I was pointing out. You can be very clear in what you speak, like let's say to your partner or something. You can be very clear and then stop. Yes. Because it's it's what comes later, all that goo that comes later that gets you into trouble. Yeah. Things just be really clear. And then some some a, a little edge of silence around it doesn't hurt at all. Mm -hmm. Yes, I saw this. Um, I can't remember which coach that I saw this from when I was when very much in the coaching space um, that said there is something missing in the in the formula cause and effect that actually it's more effective if it's cause pause, <laughs> you know, even pause and reflect. And then you get, and then you get that that outcome. And, and that, that's something that's really beautiful. The pause, which I know is this place of being empty. Yes. I'd yes. love to. Yes. Were you going to add something? No, 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 no. Yeah. 
I'd love to, to hear your take on this because you spoke about, you know, we always want to practice this or let's do this, let's do, do, do in order to be. What are your thoughts around this, the act being action, having taking action or being passive? Because I think passive is a, an interesting word that comes up when people feel like they're not going to do anything. It means that they're passive. And I'm not quite sure I think that's the right word, but I'd love to know your thoughts on, on that. I hope it's making sense what I'm no, trying makes to ask. Sense. No, it yeah. makes great sense. Great. Being empty, when I talk about emptiness, I'm not talking about passivity and being yes. passive at all. I mean, more, maybe more receptive, mm. you know, like taking things in. Being in an empty place so that you can take things in. You're, yeah. you know, you're a sponge for a minute. So you take you take things in instead of having to do something constantly. And that's a very active moment. So yes. the emptying I'm talking about is very active. Things happen. Yes. Maybe more happens then when you're busy doing things. I also, by the way, I also make a distinction between being busy and being active. Yes. Because usually when we feel busy. I call busyness a, com a complex, an emotional complex. It's it's not real. It's not really being active and accomplishing a lot. It's feeling busy, yes. and that can come from doing nothing. You know, I mean, from not from not really accomplishing anything. You can be very busy all day long and not yeah. really be doing anything in your life. Yeah. Not doing anything important for your life. So busyness is something to watch out for. I watch yeah. for myself. If I tell people, you know, you do that these days. People say, how are you doing? Oh, I'm so busy. Yes. Well, <laughs> when I say that, I think that is not a good word to use because I don't think it's very real. If I am feeling busy, there's something wrong. <laughs> I, if I'm feeling full and I and life is rich, that's something else. That's And you're really accomplishing something. That's pretty good. Yeah. And I think you're, you know, really, it is that self-awareness and catching yourself in those moments, because I used to feel that busy was this badge of honor. You know, I'm doing I'm doing the work and, you know, getting it, you know, and I'm, I don't feel like that anymore. But it was very much a conscious practice of going, oh, great, I'm not busy or great. I have space or I've created space or I've just sat back in the space even better. Um, so, yes, I, I, I think that's a really beautiful distinction to make. And, you know, a lot of anxiety comes to through being busy. It's it's okay. often a, a, a reflection. So let's just sit back and relax and let go. Letting go. An alternative to us to say when people say, how you know, how's life going? And say, well, what are you doing? They'll say, I say nothing. Yeah. <laughs> no, I'm not doing anything, really. Um, and uh, that's fine with me because yeah. I I learned from the Tao Te Ching that uh that you accomplish much by not doing. And I take that seriously. So yeah. to say that I'm doing nothing to me, it means I'm, uh, things are really happening. Yes, that's beautiful. I've, I've said that before. And the response is often, oh, I wish I could do nothing. And I'm like, <laughs> but you can. <laughs> yes, yeah, that's right. Yes. For it. That's beautiful. And I just want to ask you about this because I really love the phrasing of it. You say in your book that if any word should be empty, it is the word God. Mm -hmm. And I want to hear you speak to that. Oh, wow. That's a huge topic. I know. <laughs> um, I, I just see, see, I have, uh, you know, I studied theology for years and years and years. I mean, the God question has been who God is, has been my question for all my life. Um, and as I've 
as I've studied and as I've gotten older, that question has changed. The answer to it has changed a lot. And uh, now it is, my, my feeling is that the word God, to me, ought to put you in a place where of nothingness. Because anything you say and anything you say about God is going to be inadequate. It's going to be too limited. This is teaching from the Middle Ages, you know, that God is, is, is uh, you can't express who God is. He's unintelligible and inexpressible. So yeah. uh, there's another word for that, but I can't think of it. And uh, so anyway, I think that uh, to me, if we use the word God so that it puts us on the edge mm -hmm. of our existence, where we are, right on that, that fulcrum between the unknown and the known or between infinity and the finite and all of that. If that's where God places us, I'm okay with the word. But these days, it almost never places us there. It takes us, it, it tells us what we're talking about. That's that to me, that's an idol. That's an idol. It's not right. You yeah. cannot limit God and say you've got something. And this is what I believe about God. And I'm right. That is that is the most irreligious statement I can think of. Mm. So, so, uh, God is a functional word. It means that it places us somewhere. And if it, as I was saying before, if it does that, then we could use it. When yeah. I say, I give a talk where I say, I rarely use the word God. Mm. I don't say I don't, but I rarely use the word God. And I feel comfortable with that. Yeah. Yeah. Beautiful. And I think that obviously we have language to be able to express ourselves in many different ways. Um, but I think very often words don't do a lot of things justice. It's just, it is limiting in many ways. Um, and then of course the silence, you know, I, I had a giggle before um, I jumped on with you and I thought, I wonder if we spent like 10 minutes of our conversation just being silent, <laughs> how that would, what, what, what would that bring for, for the listener? You know, even that was quite as beautiful for me thinking about it because we're here having a conversation. And of course, there's silences between us and listening. But just to sit in silence, how would that impact someone listening right now? I think, you know, I think that we have had some silence, uh, yeah. you know, probably accumulating close to 10 minutes. Yeah. Uh, but I think that you and I have both had an opportunity to express things that are important to us. Mm. Uh, at least I feel that way. Definitely. <laughs> I, and, uh, that's that's really the thing. That that's a kind of silence, you know. It's it's an emptiness there, mm. because either one of us could talk the whole time, and you know, and uh, say even say things worthwhile. Uh, <laughs> but uh, but to have a dialogue, it requires uh, each of us to be able to say something, probably rather short and so that we're not uh, dominating and allow the other person then to hear it and then say something. Mm. So I, I, I kind of like the silence that we've had. Yes, me too. Definitely. And if there's one thing that you would love your readers to take away from this book, The Eloquence of Silence, is there anything that stands out that you think that if that just is the one thing someone can take away, what would it be? Well, this is probably not a good answer for you, but I wish they would leave and say, I enjoyed that. Mm. You know, or I laughed at this. I, I like that one funny story. You know, I, I I like it if people laugh at my jokes, you know, and <laughs> and, and some of these stories are, I think are pretty funny. And <laughs> so 
Uh, that that would be my if they were joy if if the response were joy. I consider myself an Epicurean, which means that pleasure is the most mm-hmm. important thing in life. And uh, if we have pleasure, if if we have pleasure here between us today, and yeah. if if uh, if the reader looks at that book and finishes it and says, "I enjoy that," that, yeah. that that's all I, I I would be very pleased. Yeah, that's a beautiful response. And really, with everything that you've shared today, just speaks to, again, I don't have any agenda. I've shared, take what you will. If you've enjoyed it, great. I love that. Absolutely love that. It's such a great way to kind of wrap up. I'm so grateful for your presence today, Thomas. Thank you so much. And I really celebrate you, the work that you continue to do and have done, I'm sure, for decades. You said hundreds of years. You're looking really well for over 100. Um, And just so thank you, you know, really helping people to bring more soul into their into their lives. It's it's such a gift. And we really need more of that in the world. So thank you so much. Well, Simone, you're doing that. Your job is one of those soul jobs. You are a therapist, you know. Mm-hmm. That's a big word for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, you are caring for people's souls. And uh, you you do that, and you do it so well. So it's been an honor for me to be with you today. I really thank mean it. Thank you. Oh, thank you so much. And I always like to ask my guests this final question, and that is, what is your soulful sound to the world, a prayer or desire that you wish upon the world? Well, uh, I read a prayer yesterday from a Native American uh, source, and I don't remember the whole prayer, but I remember saying that we, we thank and honor the maker of trees. We thank him, the maker of trees. Mm. Beautiful. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Great pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks so much for tuning in. I hope you've enjoyed this episode. Please feel free to share it with your friends and remember to subscribe. From my heart to yours, sending you love, healing, and sound wherever you are.